right, hello and welcome once again, wherever you are in the world, to another edition of our Pitchside Experts podcast. I'm joined once again by Freddie Wilde, Professor Freddie from the UK and Tom Moody, situated in a quarantine once again in Western Australia. Hello, Tom. How's quarantine going? Groundhog Day, I suppose. Wonderful, Bish. I've got one more sleep to go. That's all I know. I've got one more sleep to go. It's been a tough so far 13 days uh, in isolation a room but respect and understand that these things got, got to be done during these uh, very different times freddie you're running wild no pun intended around the uk in in more freedom as we get into a podcast that will be talking about matchups and stuff like that how have you been how are you going yeah i'm good thanks um not having to sort of be cooped up quite like you guys are um but yeah a little bit more freedom situation here in the UK still isn't great and might be getting worse but uh, no it's good to have cricket on the TV and I've been enjoying the IPL which I suppose is a nice lead into the discussion we're going to have today which as you said is, is around matchups which I think is largely associated with T20 cricket but as we'll explore I think probably applies to all formats of cricket. Give me a, a quick definition or a deeper definition for our listeners as to, to what matchups are. Go in depth for me. Well, it's essentially about pairing a batsman or a bowler against a batsman or a bowler. So you're looking for, as a fielding captain, favourable head-to-head matchups, whereby you're going to bowl a bowler to a certain batsman because you think it's going to be advantageous to your side. Um, And it doesn't work both ways. You can pair certain batsmen up against a certain bowler to take them down because you think it's advantageous to the batting side. And it's something that's existed in cricket forever, really. Um, I think, you know, captains have always had certain hunches about a bowler that might work against a certain batsman for whatever reason that might be. Um, you know, it predates uh, the rise of data analysis. The matchups is often associated with data, and we'll come on to that in more detail as to why that is. But, you know, even going back to the Bodyline series, you know, Harold Larwood targeted Don Bradman with a certain type of bowling. That was a favourable matchup for England in that Ashes series. There was no, as far as I'm aware, data analysis behind that decision. It was something that was based off sort of gut instinct and feel, but that was a matchup. Um, and as we've seen in the modern game and the rise of data analysis, and specifically white ball cricket, where the margins are finer, and I think getting those bowling changes and head-to-head matchups is even more important, we've seen it grow in prominence. And now, um, as Moose will know from coaching around the world and Bish, you commentating, talking about matchups and understanding matchups is integral, specifically, especially to T20 cricket, but I think to one-day cricket as well and and Test cricket to a lesser degree too. Yeah, look, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, Freddie. I, I think it's it's come in as a very topical uh, uh, subject in cricket in general, particularly in franchise cricket. Uh, with the IPL running at the moment, you you don't really see a half an hour's play without a commentator mentioning uh, a matchup uh, or in interviews uh, the question asked of coaches um, around certain matchups. And I think the reason for that is because I think people have recognised how important um, it is now in the game, and also people recognise the investment that franchises are making with regards to getting specialist data analysis teams involved with their uh, reviewing and also preparing for certain matches. Um, Not only that, but we've also discussed in previous uh, podcasts, 
it's also used with regards to, you know, building a side. So at auction uh, or at a draft table, you know, that in-depth detail um, is explored and used with regards to building a squad. So you have a squad that has the ability to be flexible so you can have those appropriate matchups. I'm curious because I'm I'm listening to you two guys who are very in detail with this. So I'm I'm curious. I'm taking a broadcaster's view here. Give me a couple of examples of what have been the best matchups in recent times. Well, I think a good example to use here is, is Chris Gale, um, as someone who's played you know a huge amount of T20 cricket. is widely regarded as the greatest T20 batsman of all time, and he actually gives a really nice example of extreme matchups. Um, and this is something we'll come on to, and it's to do with the direction of spin. The ball spinning away from the bat, generally, not always, is considered more difficult for the batsman to attack and hit and take on. The ball spinning into the bat is easier. So if you look at Chris Gale as a left-hander, um, slow left-arm spin is obviously spinning into the bat. Now, Chris Gale's record against left-arm spin, he averages 103 runs per dismissal and scores at a strike rate of 221. So that's he scored 924 runs for nine times dismissed of just 400 balls against left-arm spinners. That is quite clearly a terrible matchup for the bowling side. The ball is spinning into the bat. Chris Gale, huge strong man, brilliant hand-eye, is going to destroy that type of bowling more often than not. Now, on the other side of the extreme, you've got Chris Gale versus off-spin. Now, it's still a quite a good record he's got because he's such a fantastic player, but it is far, far inferior. Chris Gale, the off-spin, averages 36 at a strike rate of 129. Now, a strike rate of 129 is well below his career strike rate, which is sort of in the 150s, and is obviously a lot below the left-arm spin that I just mentioned there of 220. Now, that's an extreme example, the contrast between Gale v. left-arm spin and Gale v. off-spin, but it encapsulates, I think, what we're getting at there is that different types of bowlers um, have different matchups and are better suited or worse suited to bowling to certain individual players. Uh, now that's obviously all off spinners and all left arm spinners, and within that there'll be sort of sub, you know, there'll be players who have individual head-to-head records against him. But that's just summing it up from a bowling type perspective how two different types can have produced very different results against a batsman. And I'll just add to that since we're on Chris Gale, who is a, an extraordinary you know, good case study uh, in, in with regards to this, because they, they are quite extreme numbers you're talking about there, Freddie. But, Bish, you may have been with me during this particular test match down at Gaul when Chris Gale got a triple hundred. Yes. And Chris Gale against Chuminda Vass had all sorts of troubles. Yes. This is a man that's seeing the ball like a football in a test match Chaminda Vass, left arm over, swinging the ball away at a medium to medium fast pace. Chris Gale was ultra conservative, ultra uh, uh, watchful. But then with Chris Gale, with all the other bowlers, except for Matai Murali Duran, all the other bowlers, he would destroy them. He would pick his moment and he'd take them on in a test match pace, not a T20 pace, but the comfort levels... And the, the different levels of approach from Gale, from Vass, Jaminda Vass, to the rest of the Sri Lankan bowling attack during that wonderful triple century down in Gaul was a, another great example of how he also has mentally prepared himself to approach the opposition, recognising, well, Jaminda Vass is the threat. I'm going to be very ultra-conservative there. 
and the rest of the bowling attack I will deal with as a as a ball by ball proposition, but be be ultra positive. And to, to, I just jump in there one small point, and again we'll probably keep touching on this, but the, you know I obviously provided numbers there related to T20 cricket and moods. You've just brought up an example with Test cricket. Matchups I think are more prevalent in white ball cricket because the margins are finer. Um, as the sh- as the format gets shorter, the the difference between winning and losing can be an edge here or there, and therefore it places even more emphasis on the captains to get those matchups right. Whereas in a test match, I think generally the better side will win, um, and you you could make a couple of errors of bowling changes and still end up okay. However, there are still matchups in test cricket. One that comes to mind recently uh, was Steve Smith against left arm spin. Obviously, Steve Smith has been in a phenomenal run of form in test cricket across a number of years. And then just prior to the Sandpaper Gate series, he had some real trouble against Keshav Maharaj, South Africa's left arm spinner. And and during his year away from the game, and when he came back, there was a bit of talk about how could England stop Steve Smith. Um, And they did turn in the most recent Ashes series to Jack Leach to do that. Now, he didn't have that much success against him. Smith, I think, really improved his game against left arm spin. He was he, he coped and he found a way, but he did at times. I think Leach got him out a couple on a couple of occasions. It just illustrates how I think, you know, it's not just applicable to white ball cricket. Um, and Moods has brought an example there, and I just brought another one. I'm sure there are plenty more. Sean Massoud, who was just over here this summer, has had a torrid time against James Anderson. He averages about three against him with seven or eight dismissals. It sums up how certain bowlers can have the wood over certain batsmen, and it applies uh, however long the game, be it five days or 20 overs. If I, if I were to ask a question here, and this topic fascinates me, so <clears throat> playing devil's advocate, is there ever a situation where you should go, are matchups overdone, I suppose is, is my question, because I'm, I'm throwing this out. I watched in the IPL here, Rohit Sharma, Surya Kumar Yadav, destroy two right-handed batsmen, destroy an attack. I watched Faf Duplessy and Ambati Raidu stitch together a significant two right-handers again, match-winning partnerships. Tom, back in the CPL this year, I saw Mujiburaman bowl to Sunil Narayan. The cries don't ever bowl spin to Narayan in the power play. I've seen it work against Narayan a couple of times. I've seen Chris Gale fall to the left-arm Irish spinner George Dockrell in a World Cup match in 2015 as one example. So the CPL match was Carrie Pierre, I think, bowling to and getting three Ghana Amazon Warriors left-handers out, left-handers back, Puran, Chandapal Hemraj and someone else. So how do I explain to a young group we should only go matchups or there are times when you can go against the green of a matchup? Yeah, look, it's a, that's an interesting question, Bish. And uh, I think that w- the most important thing is to have the information. Right. Ha- have the information so you're well equipped to make what you feel is the right decision. Now, the example that you gave in the CPL with the left-handers and uh, Kerry Pierre taking uh, the left-arm spinner, Kerry Pierre picking up three wickets, well... To me, that matchup went out the window purely because the surface that we were playing on, well, not we, because I wasn't playing on it, but they were playing (laughs) on it. We were there. Um, And when you've got a a surface that's turning and it's also holding in in, in the pitch, you then, then the playing field just levels out. So really what you do is just pick your best bowler for that particular moment. 
Yeah, I'm not saying that still an off-spinner wouldn't have taken those three wickets, but Kerry Pierre, uh, the decision by Pollard at the time, who was captain, he felt was one of his best spinners, would still be able to have an impact in these conditions. But if if Kerry Pierre, for instance, was bowling in Sharjah, where we've seen some of the flattest wickets in the world, and he matched up uh, against those left, uh, left-hand batsmen, well, I dare to say there'd be a different outcome. So I think that there's a number of different considerations, but the, one, the most important thing is one to have the information. Uh, that is, who are the best matchups? Then you need to take it a little bit deeper. Okay, what are the, what's the surface playing like? What are the conditions like? What's the game situation like? Are they under pressure through the scoreboard? Is there no pressure on the scoreboard? Um, how big is the ground? Are we playing on one side of uh, the, the square, which allows us a big boundary to the leg side? So we invite the left-hander to take on that big side. So there's many, many different pieces that make up your final decision. But, you know, I, I think the, the critical point is that what has been proven time and time again is you are running blind if you don't have the information. So it's critical that the, that the coaching staff your captain, more importantly, has the information and makes the right decision after assessing all the other um, variables that come into that decision making. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that completely. I think it's about, um, you, I think we can be, I suppose you can blindly follow them. You know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't just be like, right, we're playing against a team of right-handers. Therefore, I'm going to pick five left-arm spinners. Obviously, that's a, a crazy thing to do. You need to have mm. balance in your attack. You need to have various, uh, diff- there are various different things at play. You've got to consider the venue and all the things that Moose has just spoken about. Um, so to just blindly follow the sort of general rules, which we should say um, don't always apply, would be would be foolish. It's about, as Mood says, arming yourself with enough information so that you can then say, right, we know that this player struggles against this bowler type. However, at this ground with a short leg side boundary and on this pitch, he might not be the best option. And you start to bring all these things together. That's where the role of the, the data analyst comes into play with the other coaches. And we've spoken about this before on the podcast with you know myself and Moods or whoever it might be sitting down and combining sharing the knowledge that we've got to try and produce sort of the ultimate team that you've got at your disposal and play to the right matchup. So it's always a case of balance. Um, but I think I suppose for listeners hearing about matchups for the first time or wanting to learn more, it's about uh, not blindly following them, but they do play a massive role in the modern game. And it's about giving that the due respect, I suppose. And just just to, to, to add another point um, with regards to the matchup is that, that there is a very big difference between the quality of the personnel that you're using for that matchup. Mm. So let's say for argument's sake, you've got three left-handers in the top order of a, of a batting order and you feel, oh gosh, we've got a bowl off spin, but you have a batsman in your side that is a part-time off spinner. It doesn't mean that part-time off spinner is the best matchup for those three left-handers. If it's a Muhammad Nabi or a Sunil Narine a high class off spinner, well, it's a no brainer. That's a decision that you make and you press the button on immediately because you know the outcome is not inevitable, but you know the the odds are going to stack in your favor enormously. But to use a part time spinner or even a hugely inexperienced spinner, even though that he is your spec- one of your specialist spin bowlers, 
you need to take into account that, you know, that, that matchup, it makes sense, but has that bowler got the experience, the temperament, the skill to be able to, to, to execute what you're thinking should happen because the data tells you so? I want to take this even a little further for the two of you. Again, I'm, a, I'm a, an interested listener, observer here. We've talked about the bowling matchups there. Fine. Let's turn this around now to the batting matchups. There are, for example, you want that left-right combination because I think I want to I want to paraphrase what Tom said one time in the CPL that. For example, against the Jamaica Talawas, right-hand dominant batting heavy, you can bowl your left-arm spinners against them if you've got the quality left-arm spin. If there is a situation where, okay, I've got a right-hander established at the crease, there is a left-arm spinner bowling, I have the option to send in a left-handed batsman who might be able to take that on, but he's not of the highest quality. And I've got, say, uh, a Ruston Chase, who's another right-handed batsman, but who plays left-arm spin very well. Is that something that complicates matchups? Because I can have two right-handers at the crease who play spin very well, but I want to, some coach might say, no, send in a lefty, but the advantage isn't that significant. Well, this, this is what it goes back to in terms of weighing up all the different things at play. It's never, you know, in, in a situation like that, um, you have to basically, it's a trade-off between Okay, so I get the left-hander in, who therefore, generally speaking, should play the left-arm spinner better. Um, but you've got to weigh that against, well, maybe he's actually not quite as good a batsman as the right-hand, who, as you said in your example, is maybe a good player of left-arm spin. So there are these, these different things sort of add up. And from an analyst perspective, at least, we can quantify that. And we could say to you, according to the numbers, this is the best option. But then there are obviously other things at play there to do with form and the way the pitch might be playing and gut feel of the coach, which is obviously of value too. And all those things have to come together. But it, I think it's very important to say the right hand, left hand, spin in, spin away thing, which is at the centre of matchups, which to underline and just to also reaffirm it is the bowling team always like the ball spinning away from the bat and the batting team always like it spinning in. That is at the core of what we're talking about, but it is not a hard and fast rule and doesn't always work because there will be times when very good right-handers could take down a left-arm spinner more effectively than a left-hander. It doesn't always, you know, you can't always just follow that basic rule. It is the core of matchups. And I think the reason it gains so much traction is because it doesn't actually require any numbers. I can sit there at home without numbers and say, left arm spin is probably a good matchup against the Jamaica Talawas because they've got seven right-handers in their top seven. However, they might all be amazing players of left arm spin. It actually right. turns out that they're right. not. Um, and left arm spin was a good option. But you've got to try and there is more nuance to it. And I think that's really important to bear in mind. The, the, there's another layer as well, which I'd like to share. And that is from a tactical point of view. Uh, you may look at a certain stage of the game where you want to force the opposition's hand to bring back a certain specialist bowler. Um, it may be one of their death bowlers. So you expose your opponent at the back end of the innings. So there's another reason where you might think, well, I'm going to elevate that player to take on that, uh, that spinner, whether it's an off spinner matchup or a left arm spinner matchup to force the opposition to make a bowling change to bring back one of their spearheads 
who is normally allocated two overs at the end of the innings, but what you're doing is stealing one of those overs. So there's a tactical play in there as well, where you're asking your opponent to, to, to reshuffle what their ideal finishing combination is by exposing them in those middle overs. So the question about our matchups overrated then, if we revisit that, it's obviously a dependent one. It's a nuanced thing, Freddie, to use your word. Yeah, I don't think they are overrated. I think they're oversimplified. Right. Uh, I think that we are guilty or cricket um, analysts or pundits and commentators at times can be guilty of maybe saying, as I said, okay, right-handers, that means you've just got to bowl lots of left-arm spin. It's never that straightforward. There are a huge number of factors at play. And as the game continues to evolve and as all of our understandings of matchups improve, I think that the sort of quality of discourse around it will improve too. And I think people will get better at making good decisions because they'll understand how they work uh, more effectively. An example that I often bring up is how no two type, no two right arm bowlers, for example, are the same. So you might find, let's say we've got a batsman who really struggles against right arm pace and we say, right, we want to we want to target him with right arm pace. Now, let's say you're a franchise team that has Jason Holder and Lassith Malinga as two right arm quicks in your side. Now, you couldn't get two right arm quicks who are more different than those two. You've got Holder delivering it from, you know, eight foot, whatever. And Lassith Malinga with his low slingy action. There are two very different bowlers right there. And I think to sort of group all right arm quicks as the same and say, well, you know, just bowl one of those guys at, at player X and he's going to struggle is, is oversimplifying it. And that's where um, more advanced analysis comes into play. And I think you've got to be smarter. And what you can then say is, all right, so this player has struggled against right arm quicks, but let's have a little bit more of a look at which right arm quicks he struggled against. And it might be, oh, actually, yeah, with all those bowlers with low arm releases, your Sam Currens, your Lassith Malingas, uh, Krishmar Santokis, he's actually got a really good record. It is against the guys who've got a high release. It's your Jason Holders, Billy Stanlakes. Those kind of guys have troubled him. And at that point, you're beginning to just look at it with a little bit more nuance. And you say, OK, well, actually, Jason Holder is the right man in this particular matchup to use. Now, that's just an example. Um, and I'm using an imaginary player. But you get the idea, I think, that you've got to look a little bit more closely, just like Amit Mishra is a very different leg spinner to Rashi Khan. One tosses it up and bowls quite slowly, the other one into the pitch. So there is a huge number of layers to look at. Um, and I think when matchups are oversimplified, um, that's a danger. But also, they can be overcomplicated and we can read too much into it. And you gave the good example of maybe sometimes sending in a worse batsman to play to the matchup and you end up not using your better player because you think it won't suit the matchup. And that also is an issue. So it's a balancing act. Uh, all, all the way along. It's a very difficult job. My God. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that there's there's further detail to it as well. And what we're doing is making the decision on a matchup, but then you're trusting the execution of that matchup. So it's all well and good. The analyst or the coach or the captain saying, well, gosh, you know, Ian Bishop, you're the perfect bowling matchup in this situation. But then Ian Bishop runs in and bowls you know, a pile of, you know what, uh, and doesn't hit the doesn't hit the line, doesn't yes. hit the length that is the ideal line and length against that matchup. And that right. can happen quite frequently. So then that's when people quiz and say, well, I don't know why they brought Bishop back for this situation. They should have kept spin on because spin was on top of the game. Yeah, but hang on a sec, but matchups tell us that against genuine pace, this player really struggles. Well, not when it's short and wide and he gets cut for four three times and over. So 
there's that element of your trusting the execution and the human element of the sport, which is, I suppose, that the beauty of sport is that there is always that twist of the human element, which we don't know until it plays out to whether that player, you know, has the, you know, composure and, and, and the skill to be able to execute under pressure. Yeah, I saw that. I saw a couple of occasions where you thought it was the ideal matchup in this ongoing 2020 IPL and the bowler did not execute at all and it looked uh, yeah. very silly, but it was really down to execution. So, so from a captaincy point of view, I'm curious, I'm fascinated by this. When you have all that data, and I'm going to say now then that data should inform a decision, it should not be the decision maker for a captain. Good grief, it's like doing a master's degree for captaincy then, if you have to imbibe all of this information, and it could be a lot, and then go out there with the wear-it-all, Freddie, um, to remember all of this and put it into play appropriately. Well, I think that's where the job um, of an analyst and, and a coach too is very important in filtering the information. I'm not going to sit down with a captain with a spreadsheet of hundreds and thousands of numbers and saying, well, you know, this is an X percent chance of working and all this kind of stuff. I'll sit down with with moods or whoever it might be, and we'll come to some firm or firm recommendations. We say we think okay. this is a good matchup. This is a bad matchup. And we'll try, I think, generally and try and keep it as simple as possible. I think different captains probably moves and you're better served to talk about this than me have different ways of responding to that. But generally, I feel like the most important thing is keeping the message simple. There's a huge amount of work that goes on behind, behind the scenes, but then it's about boiling it down to four, five, six. That's probably already maybe too many key points. And actually just one last point before I hand over to Moods. I have seen in the past, I think England have done this, Owen Morgan has sometimes had a piece of paper in his pocket with just notes on matchups to use. Yes, um, yes. Now that's sort of almost that. I think Morgan is probably an extreme example of someone who might do something like that. Um, but that sort of sums up. You know, you're completely right. It's very difficult to remember all of these different matchups. And you know, maybe it does just come down to a piece of paper. We've seen in in football um, that happening with goalkeepers with penalties. Sometimes they write which way to go, right or left, because they can't remember it under pressure. Those just key messages sometimes, just on a little piece of paper, can help. Um, I suppose, execute under pressure when you've got loads of other things to think about as well. Yeah, I, I think that's when the relationship between the, the, the coach and the captain is, is imperative. And, and you, you're right, Freddie, in that you don't want to complicate it with numerous different thoughts and ideas because uh, the captain also has got to use his own instinct and, and gut feeling. But the word that I think is critical in the messaging here is consider so using using the word uh to the captain i think it's worth considering looking at this particular matchup against this particular you know opposition uh and it also plays out with their number five batsman as well for that matter and and so what you're not doing is saying we must or this is you know this is what we're doing step by step because you can't predict how the game's going to unfold so what you're doing is by not forcing the point, because you don't know, you may have the opposition five down for 50, and that, that, uh, that matchup may be due to play out, but you might have a certain bowler or a bowling combination that's running through your opponent that you don't want to break up. So it's just a, it's a consideration 
for the captain to bear in mind that if the moment's right, this is the best time to go with this matchup. Also, just last point as well on that. Um, sometimes um, captains can read the game so well that they're ahead of the numbers. And yep. a famous example was last year in the IPL, MS Dhoni captaining Harbhajan Singh against Kolkata Knight Riders. He decided to bowl Harbhajan Singh to Narayan in the power sure. play. Now, as Bish, you've already touched on, bowling spin to Narayan is not a recommended strategy, even though off spin is spinning the ball away from the left-hander. Again, that's something obviously keen to, we, we, we've been stressing throughout the show. That would normally be a matchup that you might think would work um, because of the spin away to Narine. He's so good against spin, so you don't normally do it. But Dhoni thought, well, look, Harbhajan's specific type of off spin, it's going to be slow, it's going to be loopy, he's going to bowl it wide outside off stump. That was what he was. He tasked Harbhajan with doing, and it worked. It was an instance there, I suppose, of, of Dhoni thinking um, ahead of what the data can, can maybe show him. Um, and Dhoni is, you know, an absolute genius, probably the greatest white ball captain of all time. And that just particular instance just sums up why, because... People say don't bowl Spinton Orion, but Dhoni saw something in Harbhajan that made him think it would work, and it did. The, the conditions there played to that decision as well. And yeah. there's no one no one closer to the pitch than Dhoni as he's squatting behind <laughs> the stumps. Yeah. I would also venture to say another time I've seen it, and I just like throwing these examples in there because it complicates things for a lot of people. Like West Indies versus India in Florida uh, two years ago. Virat Kohli bowled Washington Sundar to Narayan and he got him out for naught. Again, young off spinner from RCB. So all of these things, the, the gut feel comes into play. And so when you go to auction, you have to prepare for all of these eventualities with the budget that you have. Yes, ab absolutely. You, what you need to do, in my view, is build a squad that has the flexibility to, to deal with conditions and and different opponents, left, right hand uh, bats. You also need to deal with the accumulator against the power hitter. You need to, you know, have bowlers that can deal with uh, fast bouncy wickets or slow turning wickets. You need a, a, a batting uh, depth that gives you uh, the flexibility of left, right hand combinations in the middle order and at the possibly at the top order. Uh, so there's there's everything that needs to be considered. But again. You don't compromise quality. Right. If, if, if you've got a situation where you end up with two right-hand opening batsmen and those two opening batsmen are, let's say, Mayank Agarwal and Kale Rahul, just because they're right-handers, you don't not open the batting with them. They're world-class players and they will manage and deal with whatever variety of bowling is thrown to them. Any, 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 any last words then on, on how... Are we ever going to see Freddie and, and Tom, and, and this is probably a coaching thing as much as a numbers thing, of a way that a player, let's say a batsman, and even for a bowler, because Ashwin, Ravi Chandran Ashwin was experimenting with that leg spin as well, for the eventuality of a batsman being sent in to counter, say, an Ashwin's off break, um, and bowlers experimenting with the opposite type of delivery. We know that the Dusra, the carambol, comes in for some guys, a small group of guys, or a left-handed batsman, say like an Owen Morgan, who plays the reverse sweep, and Najibullah Zadran very well. Are we going to see more and more 
of this evolution of the game in trying to counter matchups. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's a, it's a, um, as matchups. I think in the last five, six years, matchups have become, probably a bit more. The last decade, matchups have grown in importance, um, and now they are you know, part of the lexicon in a way that we're talking about now in such detail. But we're seeing it constantly evolving, and players constantly trying to stay ahead of the curve. And there are various evolutions as a result of that. One, as you say, is the the rise of the reverse sweep being a means of countering. Um, spin away from the bat it suddenly becomes into the bat um, you look at guys and this is why um, bowlers who can spin the ball in both directions are particularly successful because they can bowl to right-handers and left-handers and take the ball away from the bat there's a guy in Sri Lanka Kamindu Mendis who bowls yeah. left arm spin and off spin so he can right. switch arms depending on who he's bowling to you know that's almost like a, the bowling version of what KP did uh, when he played the switch hit to Scott Starris or to Murali um, about 15 years ago or so. So I think we're seeing these evolutions come into the game. Um, and also, I think we're seeing, particularly in the last few years, a rise in left-handers. This was something that I noticed in the CPL this year. Um, quite a few teams packing their middle order with left-handers. The Jamaica Talawas, obviously, were one side who we've mentioned today who didn't have any. And as a result, they struggled. Um, and actually, it's worth saying, um, this is a theory from the Kings Eleven analyst, actually, a guy called Shankar, who I know, he said that there's sort of a bit of an evolution um, or a natural cycle, I suppose, in matchups in T20 cricket. And that's that initially we started with finger spinners. Then we saw wrist spinners come into the game because they can turn the ball both ways, take it either way past the bat. And then more recently, we've seen a rise in left handers to counter those wrist spinners, because if you have left handers, generally they're better suited to playing leg spin, who most of the time turn the ball into the bat. And then as a result of there being lots of left handers, we see a rise in finger spinners <laughs> right. and particularly off spinners who take the ball right. away from the bat. Now, his theory, at least, is that is a cycle. Now, I think we're reaching the point now where we're at the sort of left hander phase of that cycle, where there's a lot of lefties. It will be very interesting to see if we just do that and go in a complete loop again. But that just sums up, I think, how it's a constant game of you know, the batsman trying to stay ahead of the bowlers and the bowlers trying to stay ahead of the batsman. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that ends up <laughs> being the case in the coming years. Tom, are you, are you ahead of the curve? Uh, have you sitting in quarantine for the last two weeks? <laughs> as <you've done? laughs> And I know that you're watching every cricket match that has been going on. How challenging is that for you as a coach? And you've been an excellent coach for a long time now. Where is that driving your coaching towards? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's exciting from a coaching perspective because you, you're constantly looking to not what's currently happening. happening. You're, you're looking to what should be happening and what is the next evolution. Um, so you, you, you try to always be ahead of the curve with not only uh, style of play, but also different players that you may um, you know, look to find that you believe will have a significant impact over the next five to 10 years. Um, and there's nothing, you know, it's nothing that gives you more joy than, than discovering and unlocking, uh, you know, one, that strategy that suddenly is then uh, followed by others. And secondly, individuals that uh, find a way and become uh, pioneers for that next phase of the game, uh, you know, whether that be three to five years. So you, you're constantly looking at young talent. And as you know, Bish, we've covered uh, a lot of under-19 World mm. Cup cricket. 
And, I was going to come to this. And, and it, it, it gives me enormous pleasure to watch this young, the young talent around the world, you know, come up against each other in that, on that platform for that very reason, because I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the game and I'm commenting on the game, but I'm looking even deeper than that. I'm looking at individuals that are playing from various parts of the world with an eye to them being dominant players in franchise cricket or it may be test cricket for their countries in years to come. So I'm sort of looking at those that I feel that will be able to make the uh, adjustment to the next level quite quickly. And I think both of us felt both uh, Ravi Bishnoi was one of those players that we felt could make that transition quite quickly and so far so good for for, for him in uh, his uh, his time with Kings 11 but I, I I could see that in him uh in South Africa during that under 19 World Cup so it was no real surprise to me to see you know his one um uh situation where he's bought and bought at a healthy price at the auction but to him performing and performing as he has done so far yeah, I never forgot that you identified him as as one of the foremost players very early as we came towards the end of that tournament. You identified Ravi Bishnoi, and and one of the things that has stood out to me, Tom, is his character as much as his skill, because he's yeah. bowled in some really tough situations mm-hmm. um, against some really good players. So character is something that someone like Freddie cannot have data on that mm-hmm. that mental strength. Yeah, but that, that, it's interesting because, and again, you and I never had the opportunity to do anything but possibly interview him. We certainly didn't get the opportunity to to sit and get to know him as a as a young man. But one thing that you can do, uh, and you can look at body language, and you can look at how players respond to. Uh, the, the, the good moments and the tough moments that a game throws them, whether that's in an under-19 environment or that's in a, in a full-flight IPL clash. Um, and something I noted with Ravi Bishnu, it was in that under-19 tournament, I saw the body language of someone that was so eager for the contest, it, it, it was nearly overpowering. You, you sort of got those tingles down your spine thinking, this guy's right up for it here. And this was whether he got hit straight down the ground for six or he beat the bat for the third time in a row for the third time in a row. And I think body language, you can use that as a measure as well. Right. And you know, it, it can fool you at times, but it, it is one way of understanding whether you can see someone that is going to be able to make the adjustment uh, and and make it reasonably quickly and smoothly against someone that's going to sort of take a half a step back to just feel the water against throwing themselves straight in. Just one thing that I'd like to add on that, and Bish, you're completely right to say it's not something that we can, as an analyst, you can measure. One thing that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is data just being referred to as numbers or things that can be recorded. Now, for right, me, as I, an I analyst, you're lining I think... up to have a go at me here, Freddie. <laughs> No, I'm just saying that I think, I think that any kind of information that we can receive is data in itself. You know, it might not be something that I can put in my spreadsheet, but when I'm sat down with Moods, you know, we're planning for a draft or whatever we might be doing. And, you know, Moods has got information that, yeah, sure, I can't measure. And we combine it with the information that I can measure. That 
pulling together of different data, you know, just because it's not a number doesn't mean it's not valuable. It, it's still really important information. And, you know, this goes back to, you know, the reference or the example of MS Dhoni. Sometimes there are things that we can't put down there on the page in the numbers. And, you know, with Bishnoi's character, that's certainly something there. That's a hugely valuable piece of information. You know, a coach has experienced his moods is saying he's got something about him. That's not to be discounted. That, you know, I would be very silly if I were to sit there and say, well, uh, you know, show me the numbers to prove that. You know, that's that's just a nonsensical way of going about it. So I think it's really important to combine all of those different pieces of information. Just one thing I'd like to just make a quick point before we finish around the matchups thing. One thing that I would I think we might see in the coming years is a situation whereby we have a gridlock when we walk the the, ball, the the match starts and you walk out with the fielding team and the batting side and there's a right-hander and a left-hander who are the batsmen and the fielding side sees the left-hander make his guard and stand there to, to face first ball and they say right we'll bowl our off spinner so the off spinner goes hands his cap to the umpire and is about to start bowling and then the batting side says all right, we'll swap. And then the batting and then the right hander goes and marks his guard to face the ball instead of the left hander, i.e. basically it's a game of cat and mouse whereby they're saying, I'm going to try and have manufacture the favourable matchup. And I wonder whether we need to write into the laws of the game at some point who has ultimately to decide first, so to speak. You know, maybe you have to tell the umpires when you're going out that Sun or Ryan is going to bowl the first over rather than changing. Otherwise, I feel like the batting side or the bowling side might just keep changing until they manufacture the positive matchup. Do you, do you get what I mean there um, in, in that respect? Because I think, you know, in the most recent CPL, we saw an amazing example of Evan Lewis batting with Chris Lynn, where Evan Lewis was facing a left-arm spinner that was a favourable matchup for him. In the second over of the game, he bunted the ball down to long on and refused the single. So he recognised that if he was to take a single at that point in only the second over of the game, Chris Lynn would then be facing the left arm spinner, which is a negative matchup for Lynn. And Lewis said, no, I'm going to stay on strike and take him on. So it just shows how ex the extremities of which we've reached with these matchups. And I do wonder at some point whether we might have that gridlock whereby neither the fielding team or batting team want to sort of commit to their choice because it's going to establish an unfavourable matchup. It's just one to think about moving forward. Bish. Help me. Have you got any idea who's got the right away? As soon as the bowler hands his cap to the the umpire, that still doesn't matter, does it? Or the batsman reaches the crease and marks his guard, they can still swap, can't they? So it is. It's a good point Freddie makes, and I think certainly ICC will um, will probably need to look into that because we may find that situation. Something that I, I, I want to just touch on briefly, guys, before we do our wrap up. Um, is test cricket and matchups. We haven't, we, we've touched on it a bit, but I think it, it still does play a huge role, the matchup um, situation. And to me, the, the most important thing with regards to matchup in, matchups in test cricket is the early uh, deployment of the matchup. Because from a batting perspective, the critical time at the crease are your first 20 balls. So if you're not getting that matchup or that slight advantage, what you feel and statistically tells you is the preferred way to go, if you're not getting that bowler to bowl as many balls as possible to that batsman in the first 20-ball window of his innings, you're losing a huge advantage because those first 20 balls, every batsman in the world, doesn't matter who you are, that is when you're at your most vulnerable. 
and you want to get the best possible matchup that's proven for those 20 balls so you exploit your opponent now right. I, I know that it's i know that it's discussed i know that it's planned for but it does take at times for a sudden change of bowling when you know a bowler a has only bowled two overs in a spell but he's not the ideal matchup for the opposition batsman that's just come to the crease so those things are quite critical and and Certainly, statistically, we we know that 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 early part of any batsman's innings is the most vulnerable time. So it's it's striking why the iron's hot. That's a great point because at the beginning of the show, I said in Test cricket it matters a little bit less because there's more margin for error in terms of the time you have. You know, you can maybe you can afford to be out by a couple of overs, but actually, that's a great point. You know, everyone knows batsmen are most vulnerable early on. Our numbers show that. In fact, if you look at the number of false shots a batsman plays in the first 30 balls, it's at a certain level, and then quite quickly it drops off. So you have yeah. only got a small window. Even in Test cricket, that's a great point. You've still got to be quite quick to make the change. I wonder if that's something we'll see more of. Actually, it's something that England have done. Just to sort of talk about Test cricket matchups. Um, England in recent times have begun to do it a little bit with their selections. Keaton Jennings is a player who's considered a very good player of spin. He was picked for a series in Sri Lanka. He's also been earmarked as someone who's likely to go on the tour to India when or if and when that does happen. Dawid Milan was picked out as someone who had a very good back foot game and therefore played against Australia. So there's a little bit element there of England's horses for courses, matchups with conditions coming into Test cricket too. Yeah, I'll... I'll... Uh, counteract that with a, a, another uh, example, which uh, is the opposite to that, and that is Usman Khawaja from Australia. Very early on in his test career, he was identified as someone that was poor against spin. So he was constantly benched early on tours to the subcontinent. Well, my argument against that is Usman Khawaja is a, a quality player. We have pigeonholed him very early in his career that he is not a good player of spin, so we never gave him the chance to develop against spin Correct. out in the middle in, in the face of fire. So Correct. in a way, we, we sabotaged his career, uh, or we potentially, I should say, sabotaged his career from growing as quickly as it, it could have done. We saw him play a remarkable innings against Pakistan in the UAE against world-class spin, which was later on, about five years after that decision was made, which really defied, you know, logic to what was thought of him as a player against spin. So I just think we need to be a little bit careful with regards to decision-making there. And just the final point around test cricket, I think what's used more often uh, with regards to uh, the, the, the analyst and matchups and, and planning is more against the defensive role as how can I dry up this batsman who's now been at the crease for two hours or three hours, how can we try to shut him down to, what, to make him make a mistake instead of how can we get him out? And I think that's quite often used probably more so than the proactive way, and that is, well, how can I get him out? Uh, so I think that I'm sure both are being used, but I, I just, I just emphasise in test cricket that critical 20, 20 balls is so, so important. Thank you very much, Tom. We could do this for a long, long time because I think there's there's so much more we can dig into. I, I would love to discuss 
how do you deploy your resources when you've got five guys who want to bat in one, two, and three position? What is the deciding factor there? That's for another time. Tom, enjoy your last night of quarantine before you go home and you have to do the house cleaning and the wife will get at you because you've been away for so long. Freddie, as always, the last word is yours, Professor. Um, your PhD is on the way in the middle. Finish this off for us. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot for listening, guys. Um, obviously, I think uh, we said last time that we recorded a show, we'd be doing it monthly. This is, uh, I think, about a month since our last one, um, and we'll continue to endeavour to produce monthly shows for you. So I hope you've enjoyed listening, and if you do, please leave a review on your podcasting app and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks a lot.